They were high school sweethearts that got married and had a kid. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Welcome back to the Low Effort, Low Quality Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Brunig. My wife and co-host, Liz, is absent today. And so this episode is just going to be uh, one hour of Matt Brunig talking. Um, a thrilling, thrilling idea, I'm sure, for most of our, most of our listeners. Um, but since I have the whole hour to myself... I felt like maybe I should uh, just kind of give you the world according to Matt Brunig. That's the the premise of the show. To give you kind of my whole my whole vision, my whole angle on things when it comes to the economy and when it comes to to the way forward. Uh, I've written a lot about little bits and pieces of this over the years, and I've put out some papers on it. Um, but I, I do kind of have a coherent vision of things that I have never really put put down uh, fully in like a, a, a long piece or something like that, uh, that, that I thought, hey, people might be interested in. You can listen to it on the plane when you're going to, to Christmas or something like that, or when you're sitting alone because, you know, you're lonely or whatever. Um, you know, there's lots of, lots of, uh, good listening opportunities for this sort of content. And, uh, so I'm going to provide it and hopefully it won't be too boring. Um, I suspect that among our listeners, there will be, you know, maybe a third who this is going to be really their shit. And then (laughs) maybe two thirds who are like, "Mm, really, really here for Liz more than Matt. And for that two thirds, you know, fuck you. That's all. I, that's all I can really say at this point. Um, so let's get right right into it, and just start as as I do with many things with the problem. What is the problem? What are, what are we looking at here? I mean, if you're a socialist, if you're especially you're a policy wonk who thinks of themselves uh, that way and thinks of themselves as sort of socialist and socialist leaning. What, 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 what is it that you're upset about exactly? What's, what's the thing that gets you going? And the answer is not, you know, capitalism, of course, that's a, a bit vague, but, the, the, but, there, but there, are, there are more sort of specific subparts of it that I think are compelling. And so to kind of kick this off, I, 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 I'd like to go back to my, my teenage years. Um, I was uh, perhaps a bit of a precocious uh, young young child, uh, and I was very interested in the economy, and and the inter- and and in inequality, and and you know, political philosophy and these sorts of things. And so, because of this, I was exposed to socialist thought really young. Like I was probably thirteen years old 
when I started reading some of these things with varying levels of comprehension at that age. But I kind of got the gist of it, right? Um, and I and I came to read and reread and reread and reread over the years. And now I have, I think, a very, very crystal clear notion of what's going on in those texts and uh, what's going on in socialism more generally. But when you sort of first start reading these texts, the thing that really stands out for someone such as myself is that there is a, a kind of central claim to socialist thought and, and, and a central grievance to socialist thought. And the, these claims and grievances go together. And that is that, you know, in a capitalist system, it really seems as if there is a small class of people at the top of society who owns everything. And then, you know, we all kind of go and work for them every day. And that's, that seems shitty, you know, like, you know, we look back on the feudal period and we say, oh, well, man, there were these estates that a relatively small class of lords owned, and then they had all these serfs, and those serfs were working for them, and it was kind of like semi-bondage, and that's, that seems bad. Uh, but what the, the socialists acknowledged was, uh, well, wait a minute, people talk about how we're not feudal anymore, and certainly we aren't, but isn't that the case that we've just kind of replaced the feudal lords with the capitalist class and the serfs with wage workers? And isn't that really kind of replicating the same sort of issues that we had with that, where we're all where there's a kind of group of people that own everything and then a group of people that works for them and then the people who own everything, they make money without doing anything and they control everything and they have the power and that sort of stuff. Isn't, the, isn't that kind of what we want, we want to sort of get rid of on some level? And, you know, when you're reading this as a kid, at least when I was reading it as a kid, growing up in Texas and, you know, you're interacting with sort of high school economics teachers and you're interacting with mainstream politics and that sort of thing, you get the impression, you get the impression that all that stuff has been debunked, that, you know, socialist thought really comes onto the scene in the late 19th century and, you know, through, through the middle of the, or excuse me, the late 18th century and, and you know, blossoms to its sort of peak uh, uh, in the middle of the 19th century. And, you know, they had some good ideas or maybe not, but that stuff, it's just not, we've kind of debunked. We've debunked it, you know. That's sort of how it's treated. It was a thought, it was an approach, it was a live philosophy, and really now it's just been buried in the dustbin of history, as they say. But as I, you know, became older and became more capable of evaluating these things on my own, I came to recognize that at least the central claim of socialist thought, which is that a small class of people owns almost everything and they get a huge share of the national output as a result of that, it turns out to be true. That turns out to be true. Not, not, and, and not true using some sort of weird alternative statistics, you know, that some crank put together or something like that. True just if you use normal statistics. If you, if you go look at what the Federal Reserve publishes, you can see this. If you go look at what other statistical agencies, the Census, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BEA, the OECD, uh, the LIS, the IMF, the World Bank. I mean, you can go on and on. And these are very credible um, institutions, uh, pillars of the neoliberal order in some cases. Um, and, and they will publish these statistics showing you 
that, for instance, in the United States, the top 10% of people own 78% of the wealth, while the bottom third owns none of it. That's the condition we're in. That's the condition we kind of have always been in. Even when you go back to the heyday, people talk about, ooh, the 50s sure were swell. Uh, And, you know, in terms of distribution, they were better, but it was still the case that you had a large propertyless underclass and you had wealth heavily concentrated in the top 10% and especially the top 1%. That's just been what it's always been in a sort of private capitalist system. And this sort of gets at the problem. And I think it's important to emphasize this problem because I think people talk about capitalism and and progressives in particular have a tendency to make a lot of complaints about capitalism that miss the mark. And so, for example, I, I would say the biggest claim that people or grievance that people raise over and over again that really misses the mark is that they they love to fixate on CEOs. You see this all the time. You get these publications. EPI puts out one that's, that's wonderful um, that talks about CEO pay and CEO compensation and those evil CEOs and so on and so forth. And it's true, of course, that CEOs uh, make way too much money and you know are often horrible human beings. But if you look at sort of how much money CEOs make each year, if you, if you put it all together, it's, it's a drop in the bucket relative to what, you know, the capitalist class broadly conceived makes. So, for example, in, in, in the last year, I think, if you, look at the, um, if you look at the government data on CEOs, they say that there are about 210,000 CEOs in the U.S. That's, you know, the biggest ones to the smallest ones, 210,000. And if you add up all of their income, all of their wages, their salaries, what have you, you put it all together, it's $41 billion. Now, that's a lot, right? Right. We're paying $41 billion to CEOs every year. That seems like a lot of money. And, you know, like it is a lot of money. But contrast that with the amount of money that goes to people who own capital in one form or another. And one way to kind of get a rough number for that is to look at net operating surplus. Operating surplus basically refers to how much money companies and other economic entities have have left over at the the end of the year after they've paid all of their expenses, labor and that sort of thing. It's it's a rough measure of profit or EBITDA, if if you're into that (laughs) sort of jargon. Um, The net operating surplus in the last quarter, this is an annualized figure, but reported for the last quarter, was over $5 trillion dollars. That's sort of, that is roughly speaking, 30% of the total sort of national net income pie. If you, if you kind of look at all the money in the country that, get, that, that you know, gets realized as income sort of in one way or another, money that's either paid to capital or paid to labor, that's about 30% of it. 
and it's been 30% for, for forever. Piketty uh, put out a paper, uh, Piketty and Zuckman put out a paper, I don't know, four or five years ago showing that's been hovering around 30, 33% for, you know, as long as, as we've had tax records in the United States starting, I think, in 1913. So that's 30%. $5 trillion go into people who own things. For CEOs, we're talking about $40 billion a year. $5 trillion to capitalists, $40 billion to CEOs. So it's important to kind of keep your eye on the ball there. I think this is, uh, if you want to say there's one thing that socialists should kind of uh, plant their flags on, down on and say, this, this is our thing, this is the thing we're really serious about, is, is to say that, you know, guys, don't get distracted with CEOs and are they overpaid, and that, that's really not where the game is. The game is, is capital. The game is uh, the surplus. The game is, is uh, factor payments to owners, you know, however you want to define it, property income. That's really where the game is. And that's such a huge portion of our economic output goes to those individuals. Um, and one example of this, actually, there's a, there's a living and breathing example of this that I think is very fascinating and uh, maybe will help those who are more, more narrative-minded and, and not interested in listening to me just uh, uh, rattle off statistics. Um, I won't be, by the way, rattling off too many more statistics after, after I get past the problem. Um, but the example is Jeff Bezos, um, recognized by some as the wealthiest man in the world. Uh, I think there's some debate about that, you know, these sorts of calculations are a little bit complicated. What do you count as wealth people own, et cetera, et cetera. It, get, it, gets, it gets complicated, but it's certainly one of the wealthiest men in the world. Bezos' annual salary at Amazon, if you, if you go look it up in their uh, SEC filings, is for, for 2017, $81,000. He only made $81,000 as a CEO. That, that was what he was paid, you know, for his labor. Now, of course, that's uh, a sort of a ridiculous amount if you were to normalize his pay to an ordinary CEO. You know, it would probably be... I don't even know, 20 million, 30 million. I mean, it, it would be tens of millions of dollars, but it's an interesting example nonetheless. He, he only makes 81,000 as, as his salary at Amazon. So if he's only making $81,000 a year, why is he the wealthiest man in the world? And the answer is because he owns 16% of Amazon stock. He only owns 16% of it, by the way, right? The other 84% owned by other entity. But, but, the ownership of those assets, of that stock, of equity, is so crucial to wealth and ownership and, and, and sort of the big money, the super rich, that that's basically all of how he has any money. That, that's where all that, where is $160 billion or whatever it is now, I think it's down to $120 billion. I think he's, he's lost a lot in the, in the stock sell-off that's occurred in the last half this year, but that's where it's all at right? It's not CEO pay, it's capital ownership. That's the key. So if that's the problem, if the issue is basically, hey, we, uh, you know, the people who own capital, they receive 30% of the national income. Most of capital, the vast majority of capital is owned by a small class of people at the top of society. 
And, and, and that has all sort of perverse impacts on inequality, on fairness, on power in society, on government, etc. If that's sort of the key, if that's the rot at the system, then the question, of course, becomes what do you do about it? Not just sort of politically, how should you organize, what should your rhetoric be, and that sort of, that sort of thing, or, or even, you know, transitionally, uh, should you have reform, should you have revolution, that, these sorts of questions, but, but more fundamentally, how, wh- what, what would you do differently? How would you design the system differently? How would you go about it? You know, th- these sorts of questions, right? And as, as you can uh, probably guess, um, people have a lot of different views on that. Um, even among socialists, there are, you know, dozens of views. I would say only really a handful of credible views that are really fleshed out and that you could go, yep, I understand that system. I could describe it. And if I had the power, I could probably implement it. Um, but, but that's still quite a few, even a handful, even six, seven, eight, nine is, is quite a few, uh, different approaches. And then, of course, that's just among socialists. You also have sort of, you know, I don't know, liberals or progressives who are maybe less ambitious in this regard, and they have different opinions about how you can kind of uh, ameliorate some of the problems created by capital ownership and capital concentration and that sort of stuff. But for me personally, where I jump off and where I get going and what I have found the most persuasive is this approach which i as far as i know attribute to a man named rudolf hilferding um rudolf hilferding was a marxist economist and he wrote a book in 1910 called finance capital it's a great book um kind of you know a little bit difficult to get through these days But there are very key parts of it. And Hilferding's view was that when it comes to transitioning, when it comes to how are we going to get from capitalism to where we want to go, what's the the situation here? We know how things are. How do we make them better? He had this view that I would say is, is uh, is not the view the majority of socialists have held historically, but is, to me, I think, a very compelling view. And his view is that financialization is one of the greatest things to have ever occurred for socialists. So what do we mean by financialization? This is a word that has been thrown around recently. I would say in the last 10 or 15 years, people have been really you know, key, keyed up on the word financialization. Financialization refers to the transformation of uh, productive assets and going concerns if you will companies real estate loans the the transformation of those things into financial assets like stocks and bonds and debentures and you know other sort of assets like that it's it's the it's the uh, bringing of production under the control of the financial system and the conversion of ownership claims into um, financial assets that can be bought and sold rather easily. That is sort of the key concept of financialization. And right now, I would say the tendency on the left is to say financialization is bad. 
Uh, Hilferding took the, I guess, in our uh, current context, contrarian view that financialization is good, that the uh, conversion of company ownership and lending and land ownership, the conversion of those things into financial assets that can be bought and sold and widely dispersed throughout uh, an economy, that that's really, really good and an, inc- an incredibly beneficial um evolution for socialists who want to eventually bring the ownership of capital into un- under social control. So what does he say about this? He says in his 1910 book, Finance Capital, this is a, a long quote from him, um, so, so bear with me. He says, quote, the tendency of finance capital is to establish social control of production. But it is an antagonistic form of socialization, since the control of social production remains vested in an oligarchy. The struggle to dispossess this oligarchy constitutes the ultimate phase of the class struggle between bourgeoisie and proletariat. The socializing function of finance capital facilitates enormously the task of overcoming capitalism, Once finance capital has brought the most important branches of production under its control, it is enough for society, through its conscious executive organ, the state, conquered by the working class, to seize finance capital in order to gain immediate control of these branches of production. What he's saying here, that the the insight he has here, is that what finance is doing what the folks in the banks are doing, what the folks who or- originate uh, you know, initial public offerings are doing, what, what those folks are doing is they are creating a system of collective ownership. What they're, what they're allowing to happen is for the oligarchic class, as he describes it, the, the you know, top 10%, if you will, they're allowing them to collectively own the means of production together, right? Millions of rich people own Apple stock. Some middle-class people as well, but if you weight it by how much they own, it's overwhelmingly owned by very affluent people, right? But they all own it together, right? All the rich people in the world are owning Apple together via stock holdings, the same with Google, the same with Amazon, the same with Boeing, the same with any of these companies, right? And so the, the sort of weirdness of it is that the finance system is creating a system of social control. They're creating a socialization mechanism in which a large group of people, a relatively large, I mean, a small group of, a small percentage of society, but in raw numbers terms, a fairly large number of people can collectively own all the companies, all the debt, all the property in the world. And this tendency, he's writing about this in 1910, but this tendency of finance to do this has become even more pronounced in the last 30 or 40 years, right? So one, one very prominent trend in this direction is the index fund. What is an index fund? Well, formally speaking, an index fund is any fund that tracks an index, but 
for practical purposes, or, or the thing that I'm really referring to here is you have these funds that set out to basically own the entire market. So you'll have, say, Vanguard or BlackRock or State Street or I think those are, those are probably the only ones. I mean, I think maybe there are a few others, but they'll go out and they'll create this mutual fund or they'll create this exchange-traded fund that owns, a sh- owns shares in all the companies in the U.S. or all the companies in Europe, all the publicly traded ones. They'll own shares in all of them. And so then you can just buy a share of the mutual fund or buy into the ETF. And now you own all the domestic companies in the country. You own a small slice of them. And all the rich people can come together and they can buy pieces of the ETFs, pieces of the mutual funds, and they can collectively own all of the U.S. companies. Or they could collectively own all of the debt of the U.S. companies. And the first index fund was introduced in 1976. And since that time, index funds have really, really started to take off. Um, So, for instance, they've had really explosive growth lately. Um, It says here, and this is from the Wall Street Journal, um, in 2002, um, Mutual funds, index mutual funds, owned 4.5% of all the U.S. stock value. Not that much, I guess. But by 2009, which is just seven years later, it had doubled to 9%. And then by 2018, which is just nine years later, it had doubled again to 17%. So we're, we're at exponential growth in terms of what percent of the total U.S. stock market is being held by mutual index funds. And that's not even counting ETFs, I don't think. It just says index mutual funds. And this is an article I said was Wall Street Journal. It's written by uh, John Bogle, who is the founder of Vanguard, the creator of the first index fund. And this, this is very terrifying to him, actually, this development. You might think it's weird. He created the index fund. Surely he wants the index funds to conquer the world because, hey, that's his product. He's the one that came up with it. Um, but in fact, it's terrifying to him. He says, quote, if historical trends continue, referring to the explosive exponential growth of index funds, a handful of giant institutional investors will one day hold voting control of virtually every large U.S. corporation. Public policy cannot ignore this growing dominance and consider and must consider its impact on the financial markets, corporate governance, and regulation. These will be the major issues in the coming era. So he, he's stating it right out, that these funds, which could collectively own all the companies in the U.S., that, that that's exactly where they're headed. That if they continue this exponential growth year over year, eventually everything is going to be owned through these collective instruments. And, and he finds that quite terrifying. I and Rudolf Hilferding uh, find it quite exhilarating and, are, and, and, you know, view it as an opportunity. Hey, isn't this great? We have an instrument that could collectively own all the companies isn't that sort of what we're after? Isn't, isn't that sort of the key? Um, but of course, as Hilferding notes, it's not enough to have these collective financial instruments because the way the collective financial instruments work is that they are, as he says, vested in an oligarchy, meaning that these are instruments that permit 
you know, millions, potentially billions of people to own the same companies simultaneously, but it's only a small portion of society that actually owns them. Um, like I said before, the top 10% owns 78% of the wealth, right? And so the key, as Hilferding sees it, and as I kind of see it, is to take these instruments, which the financial community has uh, very graciously provided to the world, and take them over and use them for our own socialization purposes, right? So when, when Bogle says, hey, we have these index funds that are about to take over the, over the whole corporate sector, if you guys are, 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 and you guys aren't really paying close attention to this, you, you know, my view is this is awesome. What if we had a mutual fund that we all owned instead of a mutual fund that only a small class of people owned and had that mutual fund gradually take over the corporate sector? Isn't that sort of, you know, what we're after? Well, then once we own all the companies, we kind of have more free reign to do what we'd like to do. And we could do all of this within the ownership structures that already exist, that have already been provided by us or provided for us by the prevailing economic order. That's sort of the vision, if you will, is to, is to lean into financialization, say financialization is awesome. What if we take it over and exploit it and use it for social purposes, for, 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 for socialism? And so in comes the social wealth fund. And followers of mine will know I've been promoting a social wealth fund for years and years and years. Um, and I wrote a paper about it recently at the People's Policy Project. It was quite a successful paper, I would say, at least in think tank terms. It uh, got coverage in the Wall Street Journal, in The Economist, in... Uh, lots of other places, but those were the ones that stand out because they're a little bit odd. You know, I don't usually get coverage in those places, but, uh, you know, I got, I got some mentions there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I wrote this paper for the creation of a social wealth fund. And, and the basics of a social wealth fund are very, very simple and very easy to understand, especially if you have any prior knowledge of, of how a mutual fund works or how a, an ETF works. Um, but the basic gist is this. The federal government would create a new fund. I call it the American Solidarity Fund in the paper. They would create a new fund and they would give every American adult one share of ownership in the fund. And you, you're not allowed to sell your share or transfer it in any sort of way. It's, it's a kind of an accounting thing. You own a share of the, of the fund and that, that's, that's nice. And in my paper, I, there's actually an, an app where you can sort of look at your share of ownership and you can see you know, how that share increases or decreases in value and that sort of thing. But, but the idea is we're all going to equally own, we're going to collectively own the American Solidarity Fund. So you create this fund, you give every American one share, and then you go out into the stock market and the bond market and the real estate market and you just start buying everything up and you just fill the American Solidarity Fund up with assets. And so as, as the um, assets under management increase, as you bring more and more assets into the fund, 
then the owners of the fund, which are every American in the country, they see their wealth, at least as recorded in this scheme, go up. And they also get paid a dividend on their wealth, right? So currently, people who own stock, they get... Uh, you know, dividends. They, If they own bonds, they get interests. Real estate, they'll get rents and that sort of thing. Those things will continue. But instead of being paid to the oligarchic class who own all the financial assets and even all the non-financial assets, frankly, instead of being paid to them, they'll be paid to everyone. And over time, you can kind of see this sort of elegance of this. At first, you just have a new fund called the American Solidarity Fund. It has zero assets in it. But each year, it puts more and more assets. Each year, it's, it's sort of tipping assets out of the private uh, sector, out of private ownership, and into the fund. And once it goes into the fund, it just sits there. It can never be sold. It's never going to go back out. It's just going to sit in the fund. And so slowly but surely, if you think about it, we have kind of two cups. We have the American Solidarity Fund cup that we all own one, one share of, and then we have sort of the, the private sector asset cup that is mostly owned by an oligarchy class. And you're taking that private sector asset cup and you're slowly pouring it into the American Solidarity Fund cup. And over time, the American Solidarity Fund would come to own who knows what percent of the national wealth. Um, in Norway, they have a fund. Um, they have actually a number of funds, but they're, ma- they're major funds. Um, that owns an enormous percentage of the national wealth. In fact, if you you put all the public wealth in Norway together, it is equal to around 60% of the national wealth. And if you exclude owner-occupied homes, it's equal to 76% of the national wealth. So that, so that, that is at least, you know, uh, conceivably as far as you could go with it, or, or at least that is at minimum as far as you could go with it. It works over there, and, and, you know, they keep getting bigger. Who knows how far, how far they can take it? Um, but, but that's the basic gist, is to say, you know, where Bogle points out that, hey, these funds, these, these collective funds, they could go on to own everything, or at least, you know, 60 70% of the things is to go, that sounds awesome. What if we had a fund that we all own together and we just took advantage of this tendency to take over everything? That's the basic gist. But again, all using existing governance mechanisms, existing financial assets, non-financial assets, everything that already kind of exists, but just taking it and, and, and turning it and twisting it to achieve collectivization, socialization goals. That, to me, is the sort of uh, modern-day implementation of of the Hilferding strategy. Um, And, of course, I'm not the first person to, you know, know, I'm not even the hundredth person to to come up with this or or support this sort of thing. Uh, the, The most famous recent example of this, where it was being done very intentionally, not sort of accidentally for for some other purpose was was in 1970s sweden or i guess it was implemented in 1980s sweden um through uh something called the meidner plan and in that plan uh rudolf meidner said that you know they should create these big sector funds and that would be owned by workers through their unions and over time those funds would come to buy up the ownership of all the swedish companies um, so exact same idea as, as what I'm pr- promoting. I have somewhat different ideas about how exactly to construct the funds, about how exactly to fill up the funds. Um, but that's the basic gist. 
Um, and I, I won't go too deep into the specifics of it because you can read the paper if you want and it's kind of boring. But, but one thing that people do ask and is, I guess, sort of the key question, which is how do you fill up the fund is something I think is, is sort of interesting to think about. And in the paper, I think I provide 13 different ways that you could fill up the fund. But the basic gist is levy taxes on capital. That's sort of key one as much you can. So use inheritance taxes, right? We have a very, very small inheritance tax in the US. What if we increased it to say 50%? And then we said, hey, when you inherit money, half of it goes into the American Solidarity Fund, which we all own an equal share of, and half of it you can hold on to, you know, for now, right? That would be pretty easy. And over time, you know, it's sort of a, a collective inheritance. We all benefit from that fund, and and your inheritance will go in the fund, sure, but everyone else's inheritance will go in the fund as well. So you, you get half of their inheritance, you know? So it's, it's, it's good. Um, that's one example. I use, you know, all sorts of, I have an IPO tax, a merger and acquisitions tax, a market capitalization tax, um, the elimination of tax deductions for, uh, you know, IRAs and other sort of investment, um, tax credits, that sort of stuff. Um, that's sort of option one. Option two is just have the government borrow a bunch of money and use it to buy up these assets. The government can borrow at a very low interest rate typically, and certainly lower, you would think, than uh, the rate of return on certain kinds of financial assets. So it could take advantage of that spread, the spread between the interest rate on government debt and the rate of return on private sector assets. Take advantage of that spread to just buy up assets. Um, and then it also can print money to buy up assets. In fact, it already prints money to buy up assets right now, except unfortunately it constrains its buying to government debt. The Federal Reserve will print money and then go out and buy treasuries, but it could print money and go out and buy other kinds of things. It could print money and go out and buy Google stock if it wants to. Um, well, you'd have to change the law, but I mean, it's technically possible for it to do something like that. And, and in fact, Japan, Japan has been doing that for... 10 years now, I think, very successfully. So that's the basic gist, is to say, hey, we've got this system. We've got these instruments that allow us to collectively own the means of production. Let's just use them and let's go out and do it. Let's take advantage of financialization and let's go do it. That's that's sort of the gist and, and that's kind of where I'm at on, on these sorts of things. Um, but it, 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 it one, one other way to sort of approach this question is... Um, you know, this is not the only way to do this sort of stuff. So what else might we do? And, you know, wh why is this way better than alternatives? And it's a little bit hard, of course, to figure, to decide, you know, well, what are the alternatives, uh, you know, uh, right now? But, you know, for, for the podcast, I think it, it could be helpful to just talk about three of them because I think these are three that come up rather frequently and I think are worth are worth talking about. Um, the first alternative that I have considered but found wanting is worker co-ops. So in, in the world of, of uh, market socialism, the world I operate in, you basically have three, arguably four, depending on how you define it, ways of doing market socialism. Uh, one is through state-owned enterprises. And so you can think about like the post office. That's a state-owned enterprise. Um, you could think about 
the Tennessee Valley Authority. That's a state-owned enterprise. Um, that's one approach, and I think that's really cool, and I'm, I'm for that. Um, then you have the social wealth fund approach, where it's not so much that we need to necessarily go out and buy the whole company. Like We own all of the Postal Service, and we own all of the TVA. It's not so much that we need to go out and buy entire companies, but we can create a fund that slowly buys up fractions of each company, you know, asymptotically approaching owning 100% of it, right? And that's another approach. Um, and I like that as well. And then you've got this third approach, which is worker co-ops. And this approach is, is somewhat different than the others. It doesn't rely on the government, so that's that's one. And it's proponents are usually pretty emphatic about that. Um, I mean, it does. Obviously, everything relies on the government. You can't own anything without a government because ownership is a legal construct. But it doesn't rely on the, on the state being a, an owner. Its workers own their own companies. Um, so that that is a difference. Um, and and it's, a, it's an interesting difference that I think is ultimately the the problem with it. I, I support co-ops to be clear. I mean, I don't think we need to be purists about these kinds of things. Uh, if, if, if there was a way to increase the level of co-op ownership in society and I could push a button and make it happen, I, I would. Um, but, I, but I do think it is an inferior option to the um, social wealth fund and, and to state-owned enterprises as an approach. And, and so why is this? Well, uh, to, to reiterate, in, in a co-op, the way it works is the workers in each company, they own the stock of the company, if you will, right? So you, so we have some of these in the, in the U.S., uh, a company like Hy-Vee, which is a, is a, I don't know, mid-range grocery store. Um, and the workers in that company, they own the stock of the company, um, I don't know what sort of voting rights or that sort of thing exists, but in, a, in an ideal co-op, the workers will own the stock of the company. And because they own the stock of the company, they will have the power to appoint the board, just like shareholders and other companies have the power to appoint the board. And, you know, then the board will appoint the CEO. And so in, in this way, the, every, all the management is um, accountable to, to the workers, qua shareholders, right? The, just like management is accountable to shareholders right now, in the co-op, the workers are the shareholders, so the management's accountable to them. And if the workers don't like them, they can they can vote them out, um, you know, in an ideal construction. I think in the U.S. we have uh, some some laws around, like, ESOPs, and I won't go too deep in it, that, that really limit that power. But in an, in an ideally constructed co-op system, that's, that's how it works. And so workers in co-ops, they receive pay. They, they receive, you know, compensation for the work that they do. And then they also receive dividends from the fact that they own shares. And then because they own shares, they have power to elect the management. And so a lot of people see this as like, oh, well, this is great, right? It's, it is literally direct worker ownership of their own companies. It doesn't rely on the government. Uh, is, isn't that the, the way forward? And I would say as a general matter, it's, it's not the way forward. And, and there are a few problems with it, right? So the first problem is just about the way people actually interact with companies. I think, I think a lot of people make a big mistake in that they don't first think about how do workers actually navigate the economy? Do they have strong attachments to the companies that they work for? 
And I think some people, some people do have very strong attachments. You have the people who are like, I worked at Ford my whole life or, you know, there are people who, you know, their identity is, is, is really closely attached to the company they're in. Um, but as far as I can tell, that's not generally the case. And in fact, what the data show is that workers move between companies all the time, like really quite frequently, uh, between the ages of 18 and 50, the average worker switches jobs 12 times. So I think what you'll find is that workers are often, I think the more accurate description of a worker is that to the extent that they care at all, they have an attachment to their profession, right? I'm a mechanic. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, you know, factory worker. I'm a, you know, like that, that sort of, you know, a, can be a significant part of their self-image, but I don't think that they have like deep attachments to companies and they move between companies all the time. And it's kind of good that they move between companies. And, you know, if you're a, you know, say a, a low level worker in a particular industry and a, in a higher level job opens up in another company, but they don't have someone who can fill it, but you could fill it like it's, it's good that you go and fill it, even though you have to leave your old company, um, because otherwise you'd have to wait for that job to open up in your firm. And maybe it won't for years and years. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons why. Why, why it's not, that's not a good situation. But when you think about it, right, the, the premise of the co-op sort of movement is that, no, 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 workers, they, they have a big stake in their firm and they like to stay there and they want to control it. And like there's this, there's this sort of, I don't know, kind of delusional notion that, that you have lifers at these companies who are going to spend 40 years like tending to them and that sort of thing when realistically the workers might spend a few years there and then, and then move on. And so... You know, it's important that they have representation and, and, and be able to, to do, you know, have power in the firm and, and that sort of thing. But I'm not sure that, like, direct ownership of, you know, uh, each company you work for is, is particularly interesting to most workers. I mean, like I said, the average worker works 12 jobs, so they're going to have owned 12 different companies. And then when they leave, they're going to not own it anymore and they're going to have to like cash out and then and then put their money in, into the equity of the new company, I guess. I mean, like in a, in a finalized system, that's what it would require. It's just it seems very strange. Um, so that's where problem one. Problem two is that um, that, you know, the idea of a co-op, just like the idea of all these socialist uh, approaches, is that you want to socialize the capital income right when i was saying before that five trillion dollars a year that's that's the operating surplus of the economy that's sort of the money that's available to capital each year uh from from the national income five trillion dollars you're trying to get at that and co-ops achieve that by paying their workers you know the profit of the company but the problem is that the profit of a company it depends in significant part on how capital intensive it is, right? So if you if you have a, a if you work for a firm that is like a, a service sector job that just provides personal services to people, let's say, uh, it might not have that big of a margin, right? Because it's it's a pretty lean operation. You have human beings who do the services, but you maybe you have a building or two, but you but you don't have a whole lot of of fixed capital, you don't have a lot of sort of productive machines that are contributing to the output of your firm. But if you work in a very capital intensive sector like manufacturing, the, the machines are producing a, a large portion uh, of your output. And so 
what will happen is if you say all the workers, that workers should receive both their salary and receive the capital income of their firm, what's going to happen is that workers who work in capital intensive sectors are going to have way more income than workers who work in, say, service sector jobs that are more labor intensive. And that's that's not good. Like even though those might be basically identical workers who do very similar things or have very similar skills, like you could interchange them easily. The one that happens to work next to a lot of machines that are owned by their firm, that worker uh, gets a lot more money than one who works in a different sector. And that that's not really what we're after. But that's what happens when you own capital on the firm level, right? When workers own their own companies, you you open up that sort of asymmetry in payment. And then the last problem is diversification, right? If workers can only own their own company, well, if that company goes down, then they lose everything, right? Like if, if they lose not only their job, but they lose all their wealth because their company has gone bankrupt. Whereas instead, if they owned all the companies, if they owned, you know, a share in all the companies like the American Solidarity Fund would, if their company goes down, it sucks because they're out of a job, but they haven't really lost any wealth. They still have their money in the American Solidarity Fund, which owns everything, right? They, they, you know, so that, that is a key, a key thing. It's very, very risky to have all your eggs in one basket, but that's precisely what the co-op movement is insisting people do. So, you know, I'm a little sour on it, but like I said, it's it's better than than the status quo, and so I don't I don't want to shit on it too much. But you know, like I said, it's as in terms of alternatives, it's it's not as good as a social wealth fund, in my view. A second alternative, which is is a non-socialist alternative, but which has has gotten a lot of traction lately, is what you might call small firm capitalism, or I don't know, uh, small business capitalism, or uh, proprietor capitalism. I, I don't really know what you want to call it, but there's people who, who are like, what I really want is I want there to be, I want the economy to consist of a lot of small companies that are owner operated. So like, you know, maybe like four or five person companies and you have the owner who also manages it. Um, and so that, that's the idea is like, is basically de-financialize instead of having these big companies that everyone can own through financial instruments. Um, let's have small companies that, that only, you know, small owners own or maybe small co-ops or that kind of thing. And, you know, I have a lot of issues with, with this, but I mean, the first one, of course, is that since this is not a socialist approach, it doesn't conquer capital share. Remember that $5 trillion we're talking about before, that's still going to exist, except it's now going to go to the small owners, right? There'll be a ton of new companies, little bitty companies, and it'll be spread out across all the little bitty companies, but it's still going to go to the owners. It's not going to go to everyone. It's not going to be socialized or collectivized, which is sort of the key, right? Uh, Another problem is that small companies are inefficient, generally. They're not as productive you know there are there's economies of scale you know and you know i don't like inefficient enterprises we're trying i'm trying to produce more stuff for people with less labor not less stuff with more labor i mean work sucks let's let's make it as productive as possible so we can do as little of it as possible that's sort of my view and then finally i think i think some of the 
ideas behind this sort of small business capitalism is is that oh well you know if if you have old joe down the block running the business and that's going to be you know a cuddlier form of capitalism kind kinder and gentler and that sort of thing and i i i kind of reject that as a premise uh you know, you have the sort of small business fascists. I don't know if you've ever dealt with, you know, the local car dealer or whatnot, but but so those are some of the most reactionary human beings I've ever met. Uh, in fact, m- more reactionary often than than some of the sort of finance people um, that I've met. So I, I'm not I'm not sure that uh, you know the small. I'm not sure mom and pop are 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 any kinder to to workers uh, uh, than than you know the faceless HR of of megacorp um so so that that's my view on that and then the last one is stakeholder capitalism and th- this is the one that i would say is is now most associated with elizabeth warren um i guess the roosevelt institute which is gearing up to support elizabeth warren policy wise um and the idea of stakeholder capitalism is as far as i can tell it's sort of like well what we're going to do is we're going to assert that shareholders don't own companies, that companies are unowned, and instead they serve. Instead of thinking of them as as having owners, we should think of them as serving uh, various constituencies, various communities of people. They serve, yes, their shareholders to some degree, but also their bondholders, the people who own their debt, uh, but also their workers. Yes, but also their customers. Yes, but also the community of people who who live around them. You know, around their operations. Uh, you know, they serve those people. They can't be polluting their their streams or whatever. And and you know, so there. So you kind of got the community, the society, the workers, the shareholders, the bondholders. They serve all of those people. And and what we need is to get them to strike a fair balance between those groups and and that that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, I'm not so keen on this, uh, um, you know, it, it, again, because it's a non-socialist strategy, it doesn't conquer capital share to go back to that. We have that $5 trillion sitting out there. It doesn't take all that and give it to everyone. It's still going to maintain a capitalist class. Now they would argue that when they when the company serves more constituencies, that five trillion dollars might shrink to three trillion, uh, which would be a rather dramatic shrinking. I actually don't think they'd argue that it would shrink that much. I think at most they might argue that it would shrink to four trillion, right? That'd be a twenty percent dip in capital share, which is would be quite a dramatic dip. Um, so, so, but, but even still, okay. So the 5 trillion is now 4 trillion because you've managed to take that extra trillion and spread it out to workers and consumers and that sort of thing in this stakeholder capitalist model. But you still got that 4 trillion and that's still going out to a concentrated capitalist class. That's not good. doesn't seem like to me. Um, so, you know, that's sort of problem one again. Um, problem two, I guess we would say, uh, is uh, I, I sort of object the object to the metaphysics of this movement. Um, they're very, very eager to try to argue with you about whether it's technically the case that a shareholder owns the company, and they try to like, did you know the legal definition of ownership or is this or that? And it, it all to me just seems very um, confusing. Um, 
like i mean what, what they're saying is stuff like this well if you think about it what does ownership mean Ownership means that you can you can sell a thing, means that you can you can, you know, touch a thing, you can move a thing, you can do what you want with it. But a shareholder acting individually can't do that. Like just because I own Starbucks, that doesn't mean I can like go into the kitchen just because I own some shares of the company. And like that's true, um, but it feel like it sort of misses things, right? So like for instance, in this in the this Roosevelt paper that they published in uh June of this year, they call it the shareholder myth. They have this whole thing where they say shareholders do not and cannot own corporations. Corporations are independent legal entities that own themselves. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know how the law uh, says it exactly, but, um, you know, they go on to say that, hey, ownership rights include the right to control or use, the right to benefit, the right to transfer, the right to destroy, the right to exclude. But Owner, shareholders don't have the right to control the company, not an individual like I own one share of Starbucks and I could tell it what to do. They don't. They do have the right to benefit. They get the dividends and that sort of thing, but they don't have the right to transfer. Like I can't say, all right, guys, I'm selling sh- Starbucks to McDonald's or something. I can't do that. I can't go in and destroy Starbucks, so I don't have the right to destruction and on and on. And they, they make these kinds of points. And the thing that strikes me about this argument is what they're really arguing is that collective ownership is impossible. It's not really that shareholders don't own companies. It's that collective ownership is an oxymoron because anytime you have collective ownership, the nature of a collective enterprise is that you have to consult with everyone else before you do the thing. You can't just go out and do it. And it's not just companies in which this is the case. It's also, for instance, marital property works this way. Like if you own a home with your uh, spouse, you can't just like go and destroy the damn thing. You you can't. You also can't go sell it without the spouse's consent. Um, there's lots of things that you would be restricted from doing with your quote unquote marital property, depending on the state you're in. You know the laws differ, but. Um, that's the nature of even just the collective ownership of marriage has these kinds of restrictions. Um, and what really drives home the point that they're, um, you know, really keying in on the fact that on, on they're, what they're really saying is that collective ownership is an oxymoron is they, they have this sentence in this, in this paper. Again, this is called the shareholder myth from June of this year. If a shareholder owns 50.1% of a company's share, they arguably have a meaningful amount of ownership rights. So they they concede, right? That in fact, um, just through the ownership of shares, you, you 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 do have the ability to control a company. But then they go on to say, but for most shareholders of Americans' public corporations who own a minute fraction of total shares, they have no right of possession or right of use. And it's like, yes, as individuals, shareholders do not individually exercise ownership rights. They exercise them collectively. If you can get 50.1% of the shares together as a collective, they can control the company and do with, what, with it what they want, right? I mean, they might have to navigate certain you know, impediments and that sort of thing, but, but they can. If they're serious about it, if you get together a collective uh, shareholding group to do it, you can control the company and you can make it do what you want. You can't as an individual. You have to do it as a collective. 
And so I think they're just way off base in, in pointing out the fact that one individual in a larger partnership doesn't have exclusive control. That, of course, that's just the nature of a partnership. That's just the nature of collective ownership. But to say that collective ownership doesn't exist, but, you know, I feel like we, we're just way off into sort of loony, almost libertarian metaphysics when we start saying that uh, because it an individual and a collective can't do whatever they want and has to consult with everyone else before they act on behalf of the collective, that that means they don't own anything, I think is, is sort of, is sort of loony. Um, and of course it also has other kind of funny implications that I don't think that they would, uh, Roosevelt, uh, as a, you know, these authors would necessarily endorse, for instance, um, it implies that literally all corporations are unowned. So, for instance, when we talk about worker-owned businesses, it would say, no, that's wrong. Workers can't own, no one can own businesses. In fact, and, and, and in fact black-owned businesses don't exist under this model. Uh, women-owned businesses don't exist under this model. No, no owned businesses exist under this model because ownership doesn't confer you the right to do whatever you want with it. Um, so, I find that kind of silly. Um, but more generally, right, aside from the sort of metaphysical questions, I find this sort of stakeholder capitalism thing, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to get, it's not going to zero out capital share and spread it out to everyone in society. It's not going to give you the kind of totalizing control that you want to have, at least as a collective. It's still going to maintain a large amount of power in a, in a capitalist class. Like even if you, if you put 30% of the workers on the board or 40% of the workers on the board, the shareholders still own, control the other 60% of the seats. I mean, it's an, it's an improvement to put 30 to 40% of the workers on the corporate board. Like that's a good thing and like good on stakeholder capitalism for, for wanting to do that. But I kind of would like to have the whole board, you know, I would, I would like to get those other 60% of the seats as well and have them controlled socially or publicly or, 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 or through other, through a mechanism other than, you know, the whims of the capitalist class. Um, so, so yeah, so that, that's basically the gist of it. I won't, I won't, I won't keep going on cause we're, we hit an hour here, but that's sort of my view here, right? We've got this problem, you know, capital, owns you know almost everything in the country is a small percentage of people that own almost everything they get a huge percentage of the national income each year just because they own everything um financialization is a great you know strive a great a great evolution in capitalism that has made it possible to collectively own things really easily and we should exploit financialization to do exactly that through a social wealth fund that's what we need to be doing and, you know, hopefully people can get on, get on board with that sort of thing. Uh, or if not, at least you guys have a better sense of where I'm coming from and we can kind of have a, a clearer debate on these sorts of things. So sorry again that you had to just listen to me for an hour, but you know, for, for the diehard brew heads, I think they might like that. So, uh, see you later. <laughs>